I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And good morning. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the winning of the lost and the edification of God's saints. Gospel Dynamite is a ministry of Asbury Baptist Church located at 218 Asbury Church Road, Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. Now will you join me in studying the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us. I would ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We look today in the Scripture and we would speak on the subject Who owns you? Who owns you? Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or... Shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The context here, things are heating up in Jerusalem. Jesus has offended the religious powers and they're out out to get him, according to Mark chapter 11 and verse 18. They want him dead. So they come to him in an effort to lay a trap for him. They want Jesus to make a verbal misstep they can use to their advantage. Now, the text before us today is the first in a series of attacks launched by the enemies of the Lord Jesus, and their goal in all of these attacks is to either discredit him with the people or have reason to accuse him before the state. They're out to get Christ, and they do not care how they accomplish their goal. Now, in the text, they come to Jesus with a question of ownership. So I want to share two thoughts with you. I want to share the the Jews and their attack and the Lord and his answer. The teaching found in this text gets right to the heart of whose we are and who we serve. The Lord has something to say to his people and those who do not know him. He has a word for your heart today as well. Call your attention to verses 13 through 15 as we see the Jews and their attack. Verse 13 tells us that the men who approached Jesus came from two very different groups of people that held opposing beliefs. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They were very legalistic in that they tried to keep the very letter of the law perfectly. The very name Pharisee means the separatist. Still, they were marked by pride and self-righteousness. 
They were often rebuked by Jesus because of their religious activities, and they were merely external in nature. They had no real faith relationship with God, yet the Pharisees were very nationalistic in their political views. They hated being under Roman rule, and they wanted to be free from it. The Herodians were a political party among the Jews who were supporters of King Herod. They enjoyed the benefits they received because of the Roman occupation. Now, when the Romans controlled their country, the people enjoyed religious freedom. They enjoyed protection and prosperity. King Herod supported the Romans and sought to bring Roman culture to Israel. Now, normally, these two groups had nothing to do with one another. They were polar opposites. They hated each other, but they came together for one common goal, that of destroying Jesus Christ. There are two forces that have the power to unite people for good or evil. Those forces are love and hate. I've seen love unite people for the common good, and I've seen hate unite people in a quest to destroy others. And these men were brought together in their common hatred of the Lord Jesus. Well, they saw him as a threat to their way of life. And sadly, you see these same conspiracies in church life. People will unite in their frustration and aggravation, and they will come together for the common goal of getting rid of a pastor they don't like or undermining people they don't agree with. And when those kinds of activities take place, they're certainly not of God. They're the work of the flesh. The church and church people should be united by the bond of love. And when we're controlled by love, we'll seek good and not evil. And that should be our calling card as we travel through the world. Now, verse 13, we also see a bit of conspiracy because these men came together in an effort to catch him in his words, the Bible said. And the word catch has the idea of hunting or setting a trap to catch one's prey. They wanted to outsmart Jesus and get him to say something that would get him in trouble with either the Roman authorities or the common people. And if they could get Jesus to offend Rome, they could label him as an insurrectionist. And Rome would take care of their problem for them. If they could discredit Jesus with the common people, he would lose his influence there either way. Their problem would be solved. Now, it's a tragedy when people seek to trap others so that they attack them. Uh, but it happens far too often in the world. When a person listens to the words and watches the actions of another in an effort to find fault with them, that person has a serious spiritual problem. That's not the way of love. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, thinketh no evil. Literally, the phrase means takes no worthless inventory. Now, real love does not remember injury. It does not believe all that it hears about another, and it does not look for fault in others. If that attitude was practiced in the church, it would solve about 90% of the church's troubles. If it was practiced in the world, it would be awesome. The problem with the Pharisees and the Rhodians was that they were lost men who operated in the power of the flesh, and they had religion, but they did not have salvation, and that makes them the most dangerous people of all. I've seen more trouble caused in churches by religious lost people than I've ever seen caused by the lost. Now, these men come to Jesus in verse 14, and they try to use a psychological trick. They come to him with flattery. 
People will do that. And when they do that, they'll try to butter you up before they drop the hammer on your head. And that's what these men are doing. They come to Jesus and they call him master. The word means teacher. And then they begin to share their compliments with Jesus. Here's what they're saying. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. But you are not the kind of man who can be manipulated. But you truly teach the way of God. Well, everything they said about Jesus was true. But they didn't believe a word of it. And this is nothing more than insincere flattery designed to cause Jesus to drop his guard and say something stupid. Given the way these men have treated Christ in the past, you can almost hear the sarcasm in their voice. This trick might have worked with an ordinary man, but not our Lord Jesus. He knew their motives, and he could see the condition of their hearts. You do well to watch out for those people who are always trying to flatter you. As one Greek philosopher said one time, it's better to fall among the crows than flatters. For those devour only the dead, these the living. There's a lot of truth in that. Now, there are people all around us who try to get on our good side through flattery. We do well to beware of those who try to flatter us because they're dangerous and ultimately they will turn on us. The real danger with flattery was summed up well by Dale Carnegie when he said a flattery is telling the other person precisely what he thinks about himself. Jesus could have believed everything good that they said about him because it was all true. But we do well to ignore the good things that are said about us, and there's a danger that we might just come to believe them. Adelaide Stevenson said one time, flattery is all right so as long as you don't inhale. Much truth in that as well. Now we see in verses 14 and 15, their sarcastic flattery is out of the way. They get to the real reason for their visit, and they ask Christ about paying tribute to Caesar. The tribute was a poll tax that every Roman subject was required to pay each year. The poll tax was a penny or a denarius, which was a day's pay for the common worker. Now for both of these groups, this was a matter of the separation of church and state. The Pharisees believed that religion was superior to the state. The Herodians believed that the state was superior to religion. The Herodians probably did not mind paying the tax because they liked all the benefits they received from Rome. The Herodians held that government was dominant over religion, and they would agree that taxes must be paid to Caesar rather than God. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, hated the tax because they detested Roman rule, and they recoiled against using a coin that bore a graven image of the emperor. The Pharisees believed that the state and all other power and authority were subject to religious rule. Therefore, they were strongly against paying taxes to a foreign king. Paying taxes to a secular government was an infringement upon God's right, according to them. And they came to Jesus to ask him, uh, paying, this law, uh, paying this tax is in fact lawful or allowed by God. Now they were trying to force Christ into a corner. They thought there were only two possible answers, yes or no. If Jesus said no, they'd label him as an insurrectionist, have him arrested for opposing Roman law. If he said yes, he would lose face with the common people, 
who also hated paying the tribute money to Rome. Uh, it would do us well to watch out for those people who come to us asking questions about our beliefs. Some are sincerely seeking truth. However, some are seeking reasons only to disagree with you. They're not coming for information. They're coming for confrontation. Also makes us a little bit nervous when someone approaches us off the wall question. You can tell by the way they come at you and begin the conversation that they're trying to prove you wrong. Well, we look at verses 15 to 17. We see the Lord in his answer. Verse 15, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they were nothing but hypocrites. And he knew that they had no respect for him or his ministry. In fact, Jesus knew that they hated him. He knew that they wanted him dead. Knowing their intentions, he confronts them publicly. And he says, why tip ye me? question is, if you really believe all the things you just said, why do you feel like you have to put me to the test? The hypocrisy of these men is clearly revealed uh, in Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. Now with that one simple question, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of their hearts and exposes the words as nothing more than insincere flattery. How do you like that for phrase? But he knowing. These men thought they'd pulled a fast one over on Jesus. They thought that they could outwit him, trap him in his own words. They never realized that he could see exactly what they were. He could see the very condition of their hearts, and he knew that they were nothing more than hypocrites. Did you know that he knows our hearts as well? Jesus knows everything there is about us to know. He knows if we're born again. He knows if we're playing church. He knows if you are just playing a part so that others will think well of you. He knows where you truly stand with God. He knows you. The question is, what does he see when he looks in our heart? Does he see saving face? Does he a faith? Does he does he see a, a new creature? Does he see dead religion or nothing more? We may deceive one another, but we can never deceive him. And verses fifteen and sixteen, we see that to answer their question, Jesus asked for a penny. Now that was the Roman coin known as the denarius. As I mentioned earlier, it was a day's pay for the common worker in those days. When they brought the coin to Jesus, he asked, Whose is the image and the inscription? They answered, Caesar's. On the front of the denarius was engraving of the head of Caesar, Tiberius. That was the image. In Latin on the front were the words, Tiberius Caesar. Divine Augustus, son of Augustus. On the back in Latin were the words Pontifus Maximus, high priest of the Roman nation. Those were the inscriptions. So it's no wonder the Jews bristled at using these coins. After all, they claimed divinity for Caesar. They claimed that Caesar was the high priest of the Roman Empire. What amazes me so much about this is the fact that Jesus had to borrow a coin to use as an illustration. He is the Lord of glory, and he doesn't have a penny to his name. 
These men come to Jesus asking him about money. He doesn't even have any. This reminds us of two important truths. First, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ became poor that I might be rich. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, the Bible says, For ye know at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He had nothing so that he might have everything. Secondly, I'm reminded that Jesus lived his life in this world as a spirit-filled man. He did not have to have his pockets full of money to be content. He walked by faith and he simply trusted his father to meet all his needs. That would be a great lesson for all of us to learn today. By the way, in verse 17, Jesus answers her question in this verse, but not in the way they expected. They, though there were only two possible answers, God and Rome, Jesus showed them that there are actually three answers. Let's examine his response. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When Jesus held up the denarius, he saw, and the people confirmed, that it had the image and inscription of Caesar on it. In that day, coins that bear, bore the image of the ruler were considered to be property of that person. So Jesus said, this coin belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him if he asks for it. In this statement, Jesus recognizes the legitimacy of the state. I would just remind you that we have an obligation to honor the authority of the state in our lives. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And I would also remind you that God determines who our earthly rulers will be, and we have responsibility to obey them. So... One thing that we have in our country that people in this time period did not have is the ability to vote. These people lived under a tyrannical government. No matter what you think about the government of today, we're not quite there yet. We still have the ability to choose and help who gets elected. You have responsibility to vote. You have responsibility for your vote, and you're going to give an account for your vote. The people who lived in ancient Rome enjoyed many benefits for being in that empire. They enjoyed peace and protection and justice and safe travel and good roads and many other things. All, they had to, all, all that had to be paid for, so Rome taxed the people. The same is true today. We enjoy good things in our society. We enjoy police and fire protection, clean water, military protection, etc. And all of that has to be funded by the taxpayers. I don't know of anybody who enjoys paying taxes. I don't like how the government spends the tax dollars, but we're commanded to do this by the word of God. I think in many areas we're overtaxed. And I think that many taxes can be eradicated. But until that changes, 
We have responsibility to pay them on time and in full. Now, when it comes to the Christian and government, there are four basic attitudes that we need to possess and be aware of. One, God alone is our authority. There have been people who would totally separate themselves from all worldly associations, go off to live apart from the world, from sinners, and from human government. Uh, the monks in ancient monastic systems come to mind when you think about that. Then there are some people who would think, well, the state alone is our authority. Well, that's the view of secularism. It's the view that the state is the sole authority in the person's life. That's the most dangerous of the four attitudes. Third, there are those who think and believe that God and the state are both authorities, but the state is dominant. Now, these people hold this view, pay God lip service, but believe the word of the state has more authority than the word of God. And then fourthly, you have God and state are both authorities, but God is dominant. Now, this is the biblical view. This was the view articulated by Jesus in these verses, and those who hold this view obey the state as long as the demands of the state do not violate the clear teachings of God. When God and the state are in opposition, God is the final authority. When the state stands in opposition to the word of God, for example, when we are commanded to perform an immoral act, go against our conscience, stand against the clear word of God, we have the clear duty to oppose the state and obey the Lord, regardless of the personal cost. There's much more that we could be saying about this between church and state relationships, but we don't have the time to get into all of that. And the scripture says, and to God the things that are God's. The coin bore the image of Caesar, and thus it belonged to him. Giving him what was his was not wrong. However, some things do not belong to Caesar. Just as the coin bore the image of a man, all men bear the image of God. Jesus is saying, give Caesar his money because it bears his image, it's his. But your devotion belongs to God because you bear his image, you are his. The Bible teaches that every human being in this world was created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Thus he owns us and he has the right to demand what we yield ourselves up to his will for our lives. Even if you are not saved, the Lord owns you by right of creation. If you are saved, he owns you by right of creation and by redemption. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And just as Caesar had the right to demand what is his, God has the right to demand what belongs to him. And every human has an obligation to give God their worship, their obedience, their praise, their love, and their gratitude. And we owe him for, for being who he is and for all that he gives to us. Life, air, water, food, shelter, family. You bear the image of God. And that image you bear is a symbol of divine ownership. God has the right to tell you how to live. He has the right to tell you how to believe. And he has the right to demand your obedience. He has the right to demand that you receive his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or you go to a devil's hell. 
according to Romans chapter 13 and verse 4, the state has the power of the sword. When we fail to obey the state, there's going to be consequences, such as imprisonment or death. When we fail to obey the Lord, there are also consequences. There is hell for the unbeliever and chastisement for the believer. Jesus is telling those men and us that we have an obligation to honor the rule of the state, but we have a higher obligation to commit our lives to the Lord and obey him and his word. Yielding to the state is our earthly duty. Yielding to the Lord is our eternal duty. And as we close this time today, I want to ask you, are you truly born again? Have you yielded your life and will to Christ? Have you bowed before him and confessed him as your Lord and Savior and received him into your life? Have you believed the gospel? Are you yielded to his authority? Or do you do as you please, working him in as you feel like it? Do you live as one owned by the Lord or do you serve your own master? When they heard the Lord's answer, the Bible says they marveled at him. Literally, they stood there with their chins on their chest. They came to trap him, but he turned the tables on them, and he trapped them. They could not argue with what he had said to them. They simply left. I don't want you to simply leave today. I want you to examine your hearts and see where you stand with God. Do you trust Jesus for your salvation? If not, you must come today. Have you yielded the totality of your life to the control and dominion of God? If not, come to him now. Are you truly giving to God the things that belong to him?